stories from your community. This is the 519 Podcast, part of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. It seems like a lot of Ontario small towns have seen their fair share of missing posters over the years, or posters declaring a reward for information in murder cases, cases that have gone years without being solved, and posters that have faded over time. This week on the 519 Podcast, we look into one of those cases, the unsolved murder of Karen Coglin, which has been haunting Sarnia for nearly 50 years. Here's your host, Haley Chang. On Friday, March 15, 1974, Karen Coglin was at the Rose Gardens roller skating rink in Point Edward. She was there with her friends from 7.45 p.m. to 11 p.m. During the 60s and 70s, Rose Gardens was the place to be for teenagers. Karen was set to sleep over at her friend Lisa Rich's house. The plan had been made before heading out for the night. But when Lisa's father showed up at 11 to pick the girls up, Karen said no. She didn't need a ride anymore. She wanted to stay a little bit later with some friends before heading home. Nothing unexpected from a 14-year-old girl. When she left the skating rink later that night, she drove around town with a couple of friends before getting dropped off at another friend's house on Brock Street South, which wasn't too far away from where she lived. She was dropped off at 12.50 that morning. 9 hours later at 9:50 a.m., her body was discovered by a farmer named Fred Bygrove in a shallow ditch by a gravel side road between Churchill Line and LaSalle Line, 22 kilometers away from where she was last seen alive. When found, Karen's body was severely battered. Several days later, her purse was found at the bottom of a ravine 1.6 kilometers north from her body. Paint chips were also found on her clothes, later to be discovered as the color Plum Crazy Purple from a 1970 to 1971 Chrysler High Performance vehicle. The police immediately suspected homicide, leading locals to believe there could be a killer in town. But in 2017, the manner of death was changed from a homicide to a hit and run, a very different conclusion to what was drawn from the original investigation team. What happened between 1974 and now that caused that change in mindset? How could the manner of death be so different? This is Michael Arnfield, a professor, author, and consultant specializing in cold cases. Well, first we have to differentiate between cause of death and manner of death. So there could be multiple causes of, of death, but the manner of death is ultimately how police classify the nature of uh, their ongoing involvement. Police act in the stead of the coroner, uh, so essentially, um, there's five recognized manners of death in in, in the, the in the work of the coroner. There's uh, suicide, homicide, accidental, natural, or what we call undetermined. Hers likely should have been undetermined, and I'm I, I don't advocate for classifying deaths as undetermined because they leave them in limbo indefinitely. But they very quickly ruled it a homicide, which is the intentional death. Uh, of another person caused by somebody else, intentional or or um, anything other than accidental. Uh, but no other information was released. So naturally, over the decades, the presumption was uh, that, as was occurring throughout southwestern Ontario at the time, that this was some type of sexual homicide, that she was kidnapped by some uh, again, sexual predator, uh, and then people's imaginations uh, ran morbidly wild in terms of what may have happened to her. Going from a homicide to a hit and run is a very big difference. Surely the wounds, bruises, cuts, scrapes could have told a clearer picture of the manner of death at the crime scene. 
But there were a lot of things in this case that didn't line up. What investigators knew when at the time of the original investigation and, and how the theory that this was uh, clearly a homicide was formed remains unclear. I've spoken to people uh, and all these investigators have since retired or deceased, but I, I've spoken to investigators who knew those investigators. And uh, the concern at the time was that there was clothing and personal items found a significant distance from where the body was found, as though she was snatched in one location, uh, driven in a vehicle to another location, maybe got free and was then run over. Uh, Again, that's never been resolved. Detective Inspector Chris Avery, who is currently in charge of the case, gives us some insight on why previous investigators thought it was a homicide. Because Karen suffered such significant injuries and she had been located uh, quite a distance from from her residence and from where she was last seen. Being that she was a 14-year-old girl found deceased uh, somewhere that's unfamiliar to her, Um, and she was 22 kilometers from where she was last seen with no explanation. I think they would have called it a homicide due to those those reasons. They had local officers from Petroleum Detachment engaged. Um, They also had someone from Criminal Investigation Branch back in those days that came and provided oversight. Um, And there would have been a coroner engaged and and forensic identification. There would have been lots of resources involved. And I think it, uh, well, it still remains unsolved to this day. So it was, uh, it's been uh, complex. It's not until we get you know, almost half a century later, that uh, this is cleared up and it said, well, actually, she was run over by a vehicle. She had catastrophic injuries, so they haven't released the exact cause of death. My guess is blunt force trauma, head trauma, um, etc., as is often seen in a motor vehicle collision. And uh, now we're not so sure it was a homicide, and the operator of the vehicle may not even be sure that he struck her, he or she struck her. Uh, so maybe they should come forward. 50 years later, uh, this obviously would have been optimal to get right the first time. And this is information, if that is even partly true, that would have been useful to release to the public at the time. The initial assessment of the case gave Sarnia and the surrounding areas of massive fright. People's imaginations were running wild with what sort of killer could be out there. Aside from that, ruling it a homicide from the start could have had the police looking in all the wrong directions. There's a, there's a host of possible explanations, but at the time they, they went all in on the homicide without then releasing the accompanying information regarding the vehicle. And it was critical that that information be released then, not four decades later, because, uh, I mean, that's that would have been the window of time where the owner of that vehicle would have perhaps parked it in a garage or at a storage unit, and neighbors might have taken notice of this uh, departure from their normal routine. Uh, They may have taken it to a body shop, not necessarily in town, but in the region. And if that information was widely known, uh, again, much like when there's a high profile theft and pawn shops or um, or metal salvagers are are told to be on the lookout for, for instance, a family heirloom that was stolen in a burglary. That's the type of information that needs to get out there. Having worked on the hit and run squad uh, when I was uh, a police officer, I mean, even just a serious uh, property damage hit and run, never mind personal injury or death. Uh, you would release that information because it's imperative that you locate, recover, impound, and then forensically examine that vehicle before it can be crushed, before it can be repaired, before it can be sold uh, and put on a container overseas, before it can be burned, all of the usual things that people do to vehicles when they want to uh, rid themselves of it because it ties them to the crime. So 
uh, yeah, that, that, that w- it would have been imperative to get that information out. And, and whether or not that led to hundreds of bogus tips and just weighed the investigation down, we'll never know. But either way, by not doing that, they're no better off today. One wrong judgment proved to be detrimental in solving the crime of who killed Karen. It limited any potential public help or involvement. Whereas people could have had an eye out for a freshly damaged car, Sarnia was left thinking there was a sadistic murderer in town. It took until a press conference in 2017, 43 years after the crime, for the most likely manner of death to be presented. This is how they came to that conclusion. Well, I don't want to get into discussing her specific evidence of Karen's case, but I will tell you that I've seen serious assaults and other homicides, and there's evidence that I would uh, I would see in those other investigations that to cause the seriousness of the uh, seriousness of injuries like this, there would have to be a weapon involved, and and there would be evidence that would lead me to um, understand a that there was a weapon, and b lend to what kind of a weapon was used. And in this instance, I didn't see any indication of of those things. And the analysis and further investigation led me to believe that those those injuries were caused by a motor vehicle collision. Well, there had been a review before I was involved uh, by Dr. Michael Planin. He's the chief forensic pathologist for Ontario. And he did an analysis of the injuries that Karen had. And he said um, the severity of the injuries were consistent with either a motor vehicle collision or, or a serious or severe assault. We had been investigating and I knew that he had reached those conclusions. And there was some of the evidence at the scene didn't line up to being an assault in my mind. So not that we closed that avenue of investigation, but we certainly pursued the, uh, the motor vehicle collision um, avenue. And in August of 2015, I engaged a biomechanist to help us with an injury analysis and explore the possibility of a motor vehicle collision through technology that wasn't available from 1974. And this person is a huge qualifications and his analysis indicates that Karen's injuries are actually consistent with impact from a large vehicle and a high energy, low speed impact. So that's that leads me to to uh, to work towards the motor vehicle collision angle. Through the development of technology, they were able to follow up on their biggest lead in the investigation. The plum crazy purple paint from a 1970-71 Chrysler high-performance vehicle that was thought to have hit Karen. The injury analysis that we had done with the biomechanist determined that the 1970-1971 Chrysler product that would have been that color is not likely the vehicle that struck Karen. The paint chips may have been picked up on Karen's clothing from the roadway when she was impacted or from another totally unrelated contact and or maybe another totally unrelated time. It all comes back to where Karen was during those nine hours no one can account for. What was she doing? Who was she with? It's the biggest mystery in the case to date. Something that we've been considering and investigating, that gap is uh, the period of time where we don't know what happened. We do know that she had a conversation with some people about a party that may be happening in Petrolia that night, and she was looking to get a ride from uh, from the Sarnia area to Petrolia. Uh, we've put some significant resources into trying to find information from people in Karen's age group 
to identify the location of this party if there was one happening and individuals that may have been at that party. And so far, we've not been able to identify either. No location and no people that uh, would have been in attendance. And I think if, if we could identify people that, that had engaged with her within that nine-hour period, that would certainly be helpful to us to uh, obviously filling in a blank spot. This is critical in terms of developing a, a, a timeline in terms of where the victim may have been. This is part of a, a subfield of criminology called victimology, where you examine the, the, the movements and behaviors and decisions of victims and, and, and look at what victims have in common uh, over their life course, but specifically also during uh, sort of the final few days and hours of their lives and who they come into contact with. Uh, there's some information that she may have made it to a friend's house and left that friend's house. There's some conflicting information. She was last seen leaving a roller rink. Uh, and again, this was never cleared up publicly. So um, naturally, the investigation would have looked at both of those possibilities. It would have been helpful if if that information had been released and police could have said, We've definitively determined she was last seen at this location at this time. Anyone with information who may have seen her after that, contact us. But it was just sort of left to grow legs and to become a matter of urban legend. 37 years after Karen's death, the killer is still roaming free. No one has been held responsible. Justice has yet to be served. And so in May 2011, the Coughlin family held a news conference calling for an external review of the file, believing that the OPP have mishandled the case from the start. Well, I've always publicly advocated for uh, third-party consultancy in, in, in cold cases, and not necessarily a private agency or a private lab uh, or think tank, but even just another law enforcement agency. One of the groups I'm, I belong to, the Murder Accountability Project in Washington, uh, we lobbied Congress uh, during the Trump administration and received bipartisan support for a new law that's now a bill that's now law uh, as of a few months ago called, and this is in the U.S., mind you, but it's called the Homicide Victims Families Rights Act. And what this does is codifies into law the ability for after a case goes cold for uh, three years or more, uh, the ability of a family or an next of kin of a victim to bring a motion in court uh, to have a, an order, have a police department, whoever is the jurisdiction of that case and has done nothing with it, uh, that they be ordered to turn over the file in full to an approved third-party agency. Uh, so this changes everything. That This provides a, a mechanism now for families who have uh, you know, faced mounting frustration and inaction and a revolving door of investigators who don't return their calls and say, okay, um, I would like the state police to take this over. However, there are no such laws in Canada that allows for third-party investigations. In 2013, Karen's sisters decided to step away from the public fight against the OPP, and they stopped talking to the media. What still gives the case hope today is the advancement in technology and what cold case officers have at their disposal, such as genetic genealogy. Genetic genealogy helped Toronto Police ID 9-year-old Christine Jessop's killer in 2020. So could this method be used to find the driver of the vehicle that killed Karen Coughlin? And uh, and yeah, the fact that it's been five years since that those new details were made public, um, I'm not sure what it's going to take at this point. But in, yeah. in every cold case, um, I'm still uh, hopeful because of the tremendous advancements in investigative genetic genealogy, which includes that 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 same 
patented technology used by a, a couple of labs, one in particular in, in Texas, uh, has accompanying techniques where they can test essentially for micrograms and even nanograms of DNA, uh, microscopic samples that even two, three years ago you could not test for. So if there is any evidence still left in storage um, that uh, is related to this case, anything handled even briefly by the suspect four decades ago is technically testable now, and you can develop new leads that way. Well, we're working on that. We're waiting for results. And uh, that's certainly something that we've considered and something we have engaged in. But we don't have anything that uh, that I can I can tell you about today on that. But certainly the, the biomechanist and, and engaging that and um, some 3D scanning technology, those things uh, have been have been helpful to us. And I think we're, we're moving the investigation forward at this point, for sure. It's been almost 50 years since Karen's death. 50 years is a long time for family and friends to be in grief, angry, confused, and discouraged, not knowing what happened to Karen. That's why it's important to keep talking about Karen, her life, and what happened to her. Hopefully it might jog some memories because someone out there knows something. I'm glad that the media still has an interest in this case because we certainly do. We're looking to continue to investigate Karen's death. And I do think that there's people out there that know what happened that night. And uh, I'm really hoping that as time passes, uh, whether if they're fearful of something, that their time, their fear may wane a little bit over time, or they may become more confident, and uh, or think that information they have that is insignificant and they don't need to bother telling us, we will gladly listen and take whatever information comes our way. And by keeping uh, the story in the media, it keeps the case moving and keeps new information coming. I'd like to identify witnesses who can explain to me what happened that night between the hours when Karen was last seen and when she was found. You know, that's a nine hour gap and we certainly don't know what happened. Uh, there's some things that I could, uh, I can draw conclusions on, but a witness always helps clear things up and we would like to have that information. Um, we can, if we can identify the, the alleged party that Karen was wanting to go to, determine if she ever arrived, and if anyone is aware of who gave Karen a ride to, to get out to this location, then we would be interested in knowing that. We're interested in knowing how she came to be in Enniskillen Township, who she was with, and what happened that night when she was struck by a vehicle. And if we're able to do that, I'm hopeful it will bring uh, peace and closure to the family and, and justice for Karen. That's really our goal. This episode of the 519 Podcast was hosted by Haley Chang and written by Haley Chang and Patrick Magermans. On the next episode of the 519 Podcast, 519 Unsolved, Lois Hanna. It is, it is possible that he has said something. It's very difficult to keep a secret that long. Very, very difficult. So it's very possible he said something. So we just need someone to come forward, give us a, a location for Lois, or if you have information about this person and potentially what he has said, uh, that would be important as well. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.